0: People's words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable.
1: Good morning. Yeah, no. roll 29. Twenty three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And this is what we're going through now. Got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got like my of tunes for the next ten years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> the winter of winter discontent of with, with the Beatles. Beatles. Beatles.
0: Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 33. I've received another couple of emails, so I'd like to read them to you now. This from Chris Stratton. Hi, Nick, really enjoying the podcast and look forward to each episode. My history with the Get Back project goes right back to 1984, when I was given a cassette of the Let It Be soundtrack, having watched the last UK TV airing two years earlier. The following year, I was given several cassettes of the Get Back sessions called Two Weeks in January 1969, which fueled my interest. It wasn't until 1994 that I got to see Let It Be Again on a VHS my mate acquired. Fast forward just over 10 years later and I finally got the set of the day-by-day Nagra recordings heard on your podcast. I enjoy them but without the visuals it can be a difficult listen at times. So I'm glad you've created this brilliant podcast. So much information and detail. Cheers and look forward to hearing more. Thank you once again Chris, I replied to you, but uh, I just want to say I really appreciate your feedback. And then there's this by Tom Brown. Hi Nick, I don't remember if you picked up on this yet, but I have an explanation for the right-handed thing. McCartney's Rickenbacker has a right-handed neck on the left-handed body. If you look at photos of normal Ricks, the headstock logo bends down. McCartney's bends up, indicating that it belongs on a right-handed base. I guess that is why he keeps referring to it as right-handed. Also, in earlier shots in several row, when he's having trouble with the strings popping off, probably due to the tape-wound strings, it's still psychedelic. On the last day's footage, it's sanded down. Presumably, he took it in to have the nut adjusted and got it sanded down at the same time. P.S. There's a book called Beatles Gear by Andy Babuke that is great. P.P.S. I was recommended your pod by none other than Charlotte Martin. Well, Tom, I was aware that there's a book called Beatles Gear and I do actually use that for some of my research. But I was most intrigued that you know Charlotte Martin. So I replied and this is what you came back to me with. Charlotte is my mother-in-law, and I've heard lots of stories about the Beatles. It still blows my mind too, but as a deflection I often roll my eyes. Oh, another Beatles story. I don't know if you know, but she appears in the video for All You Need Is Love behind John Lennon. Anyway, from what she's told me, I think you've got it pretty much right regarding her and George. Keep up the brilliant work. All the best, Tom. Well, I was pretty gobsmacked by that, I have to say. I'm glad that Charlotte at least thinks that I handled that um, description of her relationship with George sensitively. Welcome back to January 7th, 1969. We've spent two episodes dissecting a long discussion between the Beatles and director Michael Lindsay Hogg. Now the Beatles are ready to do some rehearsing. But first, a quick recommendation. In episode 29, we discussed the incident that inspired Paul's She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. On the website meetthebeatlesforreal.com, you can find an article titled The Real Story Behind She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. Now, I can also recommend the books A is for Apple, An Illustrated History of the Beatles Multimedia Corporation, which runs to three volumes, available at Appcore.net. that's A-P-C-O-R From these sources we learned that the Apple Scruffs were not so named until the autumn of 1969 and it's very likely it wasn't one of their group that broke into Paul's home Anyway, check these resources out if you want to know more We're now into season 4 and after today's episode when the Beatles will break for lunch, you will have 33 episodes and 20 plus hours to binge listen to or dip into at your leisure. I'm finding that the Nagra Tapes don't just provide a first-hand source for the get-back story, but the band's references to their past and other artists broadens the scope of this podcast to tell the tale of not just the Beatles' history, but of their peers and influences too. At this point, I usually summarise the events of the previous show. But I effectively did this at the end of episode 32. So to avoid repeating myself, I thought we'd take a few minutes to review the situation from the perspective of the project's instigator, Paul McCartney. Imagine for a moment that you are Paul McCartney following today's discussions. From your point of view, you already had your bandmates agreement to play a live show in front of cameras. In late 1968 you called a band meeting and suggested this idea as a way to hopefully motivate everyone and keep the band in the spotlight while Ringo was unavailable due to filming commitments. In a way, this is a repeat of the flurry of activity at the start of 1968 where the Beatles recorded a number of tracks including the single Lady Madonna to satisfy fans while they made their pilgrimage to Rishikesh in February. To your mind, everyone was on board. John even jokingly commented, I get it, You want a job. The normally downcast George was even enthusiastic, buoyed by his recent experiences in Woodstock with Bob Dylan. You assemble the crew, trusted peers like Michael Lindsay Hogg, respected technicians like Glyn Johns, the ubiquitous George Martin, and the avuncular Dennis O'Dell. You go on a scouting trip for locations, but settle on Twickenham's soundstage as a stopgap for rehearsals because Dennis can pull strings and delay the shooting schedule for Ringo's film. Somewhere in the discussions with Dennis and Michael, the idea for an amphitheatre in Sabratha emerges, so for a brief period there is a plan, film rehearsals at Twickenham, then stage a show at an exotic location. On day one of rehearsals, Ringo immediately torpedoes the idea of travelling abroad for the live show. Perhaps Ringo is a scapegoat here, it's unlikely that George was completely on board. But in the end, his contribution to the derailing of the project shouldn't be underestimated. This puts the production team back to square one. There isn't a plan B, and Michael's best hope is that he can somehow convince Ringo to change his mind. Paul's natural way of working encounters resistance by the 6th of January, with George all too aware of how it will look if Paul is shown directing every single note played by the band. Paul isn't empathetic enough to realise how he is making his bandmates appear, and so he and George lock horns, quibbling over every detail. George in particular seems most wounded by the short shrift given to his song Hear Me Lord, which he repeatedly tries to interest the group in, but to no avail. But while you're imagining your pull, it would be reasonable to expect your long time ally, John, to come to your aid. You know he is capable of creating brilliant and innovative work, especially when under pressure. But John is distracted, he has either hit a dry patch or he's willfully failing to contribute much in the way of new material. And so you, as Paul, feel you need to shoulder the burden of creating the majority of new material. Luckily, you're at the height of your powers. You've brought in the songs, two of us, half of I've Got a Feeling, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. You also have embryonic versions of The Long and Winding Road and Let It Be, plus songs Without a Home Yet. Oh darling, carry that weight and golden slumbers. And just this morning, the muse struck you again as Get Back emerged from a two chord bass riff. We know that you, Paul, called another meeting of the band yesterday and demanded an answer on whether they were going to do the live show or not. Then as now, you failed to get any commitment. Your statements and questions got no response. And just this morning, George has announced that he doesn't want to do the show. Ringo is taciturn and John is seemingly unable to communicate. Is it any wonder you feel like throwing in the towel? You've done all the heavy lifting, getting the band to agree to a project and then setting it all up. You're the main point of contact for director, crew and recording engineer. You've written most of the material and led the arrangements for other people's, notably John's work. But you feel now that You've become the authority figure that everyone is rebelling against instead of being part of a gang united against the world. And So you, Paul, throw in a petulant statement that maybe the Beatles should make this their last project as a way of goading George or John into making some kind of decision either way. But you know that they know you don't really mean it. You more than anyone else are a champion for the band and for how good they can be. No-one believes you would really split up the band. That seems unthinkable, and so they continue to provoke you, knowing you'll continue to push for band unity, which you'll never get. So it's against this background that the Beatles continue to rehearse, seemingly in denial that they have just come close to cancelling the entire project and ending the band. No-one has the courage to make a firm decision barring Ringo who's made his feelings plain about where he's willing to perform. Once again, it falls to Paul to carry on business as usual, working on arrangements while the future of the project now seems uncertain. Let's join them now, acting as if the previous conversation never happened. Paul counts in I've Got a Feeling, but a confused John plays the chords to She Came In Through the Bathroom Window.
1: Okay, I've Got a
2: Feeling. One, two, three, four. That's bad, What was it? Okay. <laughs> How did it go? Is it that In the bathroom
0: window, i okay. a i a George is back on the Wawa. No no.
2: No, 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 no,
0: no. Tape cuts. We presume this is the end of this performance. This
1: is roll 56 slate 109 camera A. Okay, the, the only bit I think we should do is like this. Got a heart, yeah? that one. So
0: like a... Paul now focusing on the section of the song that John sings looking for something different in this case changing the bass part.
1: We should start off by doing everything we're going to do on the thing. Like If you're going to do the oh yeahs in it, you've got to do them how you're going to do it. Because no use singing them quiet now and planning to do them loud on the night. And if we're going to have echo on one number and live on another, we've got to get that together, you know, and wah-wah on one. Yeah, we've got to get it together like how. Sort of change to Lowry to piano. There's all that too.
0: Paul is back to talking about the logistics of a live show that no one has agreed to do.
1: Do it again. One, two, it's a bit quieter. Three, four.
0: on the center. Oh yeah. Okay. Another focus on detail from Paul reminding everyone what they should do for backing vocals. Two, three, <laughs> four. Once again Ringo has his parts memorised. Asking Ringo not to swing is a tall order. Everything he plays is a swing. Uh,
2: try that with you and me doing this carrying
1: on straight. Don't forget that he's doing t- 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 Don't go into like that swing here.
0: The song too early and realize it.
1: Oh, yes. Three
0: things. Two, three, four. I've got John plays his chords very clipped following Paul's request. I've
2: gotta
0: this time Paul stopped too early. the uh oh, yeah George asking if he still needs to do backing vocals when John and Paul are singing the counter melodies at the end
1: Oh, because well, it's like doing it on his own. because you and you do it don't you? so you should I yeah.
2: do it with you well I haven't been doing it on the old ones I would do
1: it you know, I sort think do it on good days but mm. well, you know, that's okay so we've got to decide definitely Maybe we should miss it on that bit because. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Let's just listen. Everybody had a hard year.
2: Everybody had a good time. Oh, yeah. Everybody
1: had a wet dream. Everybody had a sunshine. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. There's only going to be us two. Yeah, okay. Well, don't do it on the end normally.
0: What George is actually pointing out is that. They can't sing the Oh Yes and Oh No's as three part harmony now because John is singing the counter melody.
1: But on all the others, have we got an Oh Yeah? Yes, yes. we've got a definite yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh so yeah. Well, let's a oh Yeah sing in unison, I In unison, John. John and I are in these ones. Sounds a bit like
0: of everybody. Oh yeah. Hey hey A little quote from John from the Beach Boys' Smiley Smile album, Mike Love's refrain in the song Wonderful. The Beatles had spent time in Mike Love's company in early 1968 at Rishikesh, India. In December of 1967, Mike Love and his fellow Beach Boys attended a UNICEF Variety Gala in Paris. There to give a speech was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Just as the Beatles had been that August, the attendant Beach Boys were impressed by the concept of transcendental meditation and the simplicity of the process in helping one attain inner peace. In January, they attended one of Maharishi's public appearances in New York, then one in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was here that Mike Love was invited to attend the Spiritual Regeneration course in Rishikesh that February. The same course that the Beatles were attending, although Love did not yet know this. He arrived on the 28th of February and the first people he met at the ashram were John, Paul, George and Ringo. I had travelled to the other side of the world with the expectation of total seclusion. But here I was, impossibly in the media spotlight, as reporters from all over were trying to cover the Beatles in Rishikesh. It was hard to fathom. Love spent two weeks at the ashram But in that period, he hatched an ambitious plan to tour the US as a double bill with the Beach Boys and the Maharishi in May. He also bonded with the Beatles, notably Paul and George. Of George he said, We both loved Indian food. He loved Indian music. He studied sitar. We loved the Maharishi. He was a devotee of the Hare Krishna movement. I think we had a lot in common that way. On Mike Love's final day, March 15th, also his birthday, John, Paul, George and Donovan played Mike a song they'd written for him, in the style of the Beach Boys, called Spiritual Regeneration Movement Foundation, which can be heard in our pre credit sequence. But this wasn't the only homage to the surf sound written in that period. Mike recalls one morning, Paul played him an early version of Back in the USSR, at that point a Chunk Berry pastiche. It was just he and I one morning, and monkeys and crows trying to get your food. So he plays this rough song, but he didn't have a bridge. So I said, you got to talk about the girls in Russia. And he took that concept and wrote the bridge. Of course, parodies of the surf sound weren't the only manifestation of influence the Beach Boys had on the Beatles. It's pretty well known that Paul and John were inspired by the Beach Boys' album Pet Sounds when they began work on Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The song Penny Lane owes a great deal to the production sound and arrangement of the Brian Wilson song God Only Knows. And later in 1969 the Beatles will be inspired by the track Our Prayer to add layered vocal harmonies to the song Because. Mike Love never wavered in his devotion to Transcendental Meditation. The tour with Maharishi was an embarrassing failure and was cancelled after just five days, but Love continued studying, eventually qualifying as an initiator in 1972, when he befriended another attendee of that 1968 meditation course, Prudence Farah. Now in his 80s, he credits Transcendental Meditation with giving him a long and successful life and career.
1: And then the third and the second split Okay. one, two, three, so four I've got a feeling Oh, I suppose actually it's it's just on its own for anyway
0: Suggestion from George to start the Oh Yes in unison And then split into harmony for the Oh No's the second time around
2: There's a bit first, go and do the, do the intro
1: Yeah, the same so
2: always
1: come on to do it. It. It's always, it's always, except for the very last time, it's always, oh yeah, in your listening. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh no. Oh no. Oh, but then the last time, oh yeah, oh yeah. A <laughs> triumphant reappraisal and reaffirmation of the
0: faith of which we have had since here being his own music critic states that saying oh yeah twice in the final verse is a reaffirmation and reappraisal of the faith of which we have had for so long. A switch of feed Causes the sound to drop out. Now we hear the band through the PA. A switch back to a clearer signal.
2: Everybody put the foot down.
1: Uh, what was
2: the th- this bit?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just after the first um... Oh, yeah, it's. Down, 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 to Just and could, should come the twice there's two occasions
2: okay
1: so, so do the verse Paul
0: again suggesting a guitar line for George
1: um, please believe me Later, Mr. Trent Ch- i hate to miss
0: the train another switch of the feed and back
1: this is roll 57 camera a slate 110
0: George and Paul call for Kevin. They get no response. George improvises a quick tune which seems to be a poorly remembered rendition of Maxwell's silver hammer. Some nasty feedback now, I'm sorry in advance. Glyn is talking to Ringo now and appears to be saying that the sound of the snare drum is going to be picked up by the mics and come out of the PA speakers. But it might be quite nice. It sounds like Glyn is trying to set up to record now. You also hear them both mention tea towels. This was Ringo's preferred method of dampening the sound of his drums. <laughs> Moves to the piano, we can assume the feedback was caused by trying to set up mics on the piano. talks to kevin harrington who has returned from wherever he was earlier there's a conversation here but unfortunately i can't work out what it refers to paul says i don't think so then just put the word around kevin says i've got his telephone number paul suggests ringing him this afternoon ringo leads the band into a loose jam paul on piano and john on guitar switches but there's no mic on the piano yet, just a bit of leakage on the vocal mic. This different drier sound we can presume is Glenn Johns' handiwork. tape cuts another improvised blues style song Georgie's bass is now plugged in requests Paul play Oh Darling. Interestingly, he calls out the key as B-flat, though John says A-flat. It's interesting because on Abbey Road, the song is in the key of A. Oh, oh, darling. Me. George and John attempt to play along. They both seem to have heard the song, but not played it before.
1: Put something
0: in between your legs. Paul complains about how they've set up the vocal mic. Oh, oh darling,
1: Lead, believe me, believe me, believe
2: me, believe me, believe believe me, when I
0: George singing the bridge to Elvis's One Night With You, along to the bridge of O Darling. One Night was originally an R&B hit for Smiley Lewis in 1956, written by a trio of writers, Dave Bartholomew, his wife Pearl King, and Anita Steinman. The addition of Anita Steinman to the credits was for her work in boulderising the lyrics to the song, which was originally entitled One Night of Sin. Elvis Presley covered the song in 1957, complete with its risque lyric, One Night of Sin is what I'm now paying for. Both the record company and Elvis' manager Colonel Tom Parker had reservations about releasing the song as it was, but Presley was so enamoured with the song, playing it often on the set of his second motion picture, Loving You, Eventually, the opening line was rewritten either by Steinman or Presley himself to One Night With You is What I'm Now Praying For, giving Steinman a handsome payout for effectively changing three words. The new version was recorded on the 23rd of February 1957 at Radio Recorders in Los Angeles. The song wasn't released as a single until October 1958, where it peaked at number four in the Billboard singles chart. The song is also the standout performance from the sit down segment of his 1968 TV special, Singer Presents Elvis, otherwise known as the 68 Comeback Special. The show had aired in the US on December 3rd, 1968, to wide critical acclaim and was accompanied by a million selling soundtrack album. It's very unlikely that Paul was unaware of the impact the show had when he was working on the concept for the Beatles' Return to Live performance. It probably goes without saying that the Elvis TV special completely reversed the trajectory of Elvis's career. For an artist who was considered an idol to many, including the Beatles, he had spent five years on the fringes of popular culture. Five years with only one single reaching the top ten. Five years only recording soundtrack albums and releasing songs that only made sense in the context of his formulaic Hal Wallace movies. Tracks like No Room To Rumba In A Sports Car, Yoga Is As Yoga Does and Queenie Wahine's Papaya were lamentably, laughably out of step with the beat, folk rock and psychedelic material being produced by artists like Bob Dylan, The Birds and The Doors. By late 1967, even Hal Wallace productions were unprepared to take a risk on another Presley movie. Lacking a source of future income from his only property, Colonel Tom approached NBC for a $1.25 million two-picture deal. The agreement was for one cinematic release and one NBC TV special. Parker, who was still trying to steer Presley's career into that of a mainstream, wholesome, all-round entertainer, envisioned the TV show as a Christmas special, which he pitched as 20-30 to Christmas songs and carols with the United Nations boys' choir. The proposal for the Christmas special was delivered to Elvis as a fait accompli. Contracts were signed and commitments had to be met. NBC had a lot of money riding on this deal. This is, in fact, where the Beatles were less business-savvy. They're entering into their film documentary before they've even sold the product, thereby taking on all the risk if the project is unsuccessful. Presley was reportedly angry with Parker at the idea of a Christmas special, but good fortune was about to descend on the project in the form of an excellent and hip production team. NBC appointed producer Bob Finkel to the Elvis project, and Finkel hired 23-year-old director Steve Binder to work on a new concept with his writers Chris Beard and Alan Bly. In addition, Binder brought in his associate Bones Howe to supervise the sound. The concept that Beard and Bly settled on was a journey through Elvis's life. Naturally, Colonel Parker hated the idea. Presley, on the other hand, loved it. According to Binder, they were ushered out of the office while Presley and Parker had a private discussion. Parker then abruptly left and from that moment had very little involvement in the project. Binder and Presley immediately hit it off. Binder being the younger man was more into West Coast rock, but he was blown away by Elvis's talent. Elvis expressed his reservations about doing a TV show recalling an incident where he had been made to look ridiculous on the Steve Allen show singing Hound Dog to an actual Hound Dog, while dressed in tucks and tails. But during rehearsals, Binder found what he thought would be the key to the audience discovering the real Elvis. In his dressing room, Presley would kick back with his entourage and various musicians and jam for hours. Everyone joining in on whatever makeshift percussion they could find. Ashtrays, guitar cases, the top of the piano. Initially, Binder wanted to bring cameras into this informal gathering and capture some of the raw energy, but Parker rejected the idea outright. Instead, Binder was allowed to recreate the atmosphere in the form of two sit-down shows before an audience. Scotty Moore, his longtime guitarist, was there, as was drummer J.D. Fontana, banging sticks on a guitar case, and he exchanged gags and funny stories with one of his crew, Charlie Hodge. Adopting a look from Marlon Brando's The Wild One, Elvis was dressed in an all black leather outfit designed by Bill Ballou. Only one was made for the show, which caused issues for the wardrobe department as it was returned soaked in sweat and allegedly another bodily fluid. Such was Elvis's excitement at the audience reaction. The result was transformative. The image of Presley in leather drenched in sweat with Scotty Moore's guitar on his knee became iconic. Nielsen TV ratings put the show in the top spot. The associated single, If I Can Dream, became a worldwide number one. Elvis's career was rescued not just by his raw talent and charisma, but by the ambition and drive of the production team. One incident typifies the difference between Steve Binder and Michael Lindsay Hogg. Before the first sit down show, daunted by the prospect of a live performance, Elvis confided in Binder. I can't do this. I can't remember what to say. I can't go out there. I think it's a terrible idea. Binder simply told Presley. You don't have a choice. Break should go. George actually comments here that he thinks Maxwell will be better. into the browsery at Nem's record store in late 1958, Paul and George were struck by the sound of an unfamiliar chord in the Buddy Holly song, Raining In in My Heart. We knew that something went up in the chords, so me and George would work it out. Buddy Holly used an odd chord like that, Raining In My Heart, and the second chord in there is augmented. The mystery chord that intrigued them both was a G augmented. It's a disc chord that is there to create tension, the tension seeks release, and in Raining in My Heart, the D sharp rises to E to create a G6, then F to create a G7, then resolving on a C major on the word raining. After discovering the augmented chord, the Beatles put it to good use. George Harrison would refer to it as the naughty chord, and all of the three principal songwriting Beatles would use it in their compositions. In fact, lots of their compositions, even from their earliest recordings. Ask me why I'm happy just to dance with you. It won't be long from me to you. It's only love. You know what to do. Michelle, all my loving like dreamers do. I'll be on my way being for the benefit of Mr. Kite fixing a hole. I am the walrus got to get you into my life. You know my name. Look up the number something. I want you. She's so heavy and the tune requested by John just now, Oh Darling, but there are many others. Oh Darling appears to date from December 1968 and may have its origins in the song that George has immediately compared it to, One Night by Elvis Presley. But there are a number of other contenders, Charles Brown's Please Come Home for Christmas, Little Richard's Send Me Some Lovin', already cited by John as the inspiration for the middle section of Don't Let Me Down and Slim Harpo's completely unrelated Reigning In My Heart. Ian MacDonald in his book Revolution In The Head believes it may have been influenced by Frank Zappa's pastiche album Ruben and the Jets in 1968. The song is in the key of E and like One Night appears, at least to me, written on guitar first and then transferred to piano, possibly to get a more New Orleans Fats Domino style than an Elvis Presley one. As a song, it follows a fairly predictable do-wop progression. After the trademark Beatle augmented chord, it goes A to E, F sharp minor to D, then a less obvious B minor 7th, to E twice for the believe me when I tell you section. Before resolving on a typical turnaround, reminiscent of the bonzo dog band's canyons of your mind. The bridge chorus shifts to a four chord of D, still very traditional, but then inserts an unusual borrowed chord, f 7 for the line you didn't need me anymore. The lines are repeated over a modulation to B7 before another blues cliche turnaround, E7 to F7 and back. Then we're back to the E augmented to start again. Basically, Oh Darling is a retro style doo-wop tune. Similar to The Swamp Popper and a homage to Fat's Domino, much in the way that Lady Madonna is. It's following a traditional sequence, but with some interesting and ear-catching unexpected twists. Whilst its style seems out of date and its lyrics are blunt and to the point, it's not without charm and could have been a contender for the live show, as it's obviously known to John and pretty easy to learn. But for the moment, as George has spotted its similarity to One Night, He would rather pursue Maxwell's Silver Hammer than this. In fact, George later said of Oh Darling It's a typical 50s or 60s kind of a song. The chord structure is very nice. It's a typical 1955 type song. To fill in time, Paul runs through the piano to the Long and Winding Road. This run through is just the Beatles refreshing their memories. the band into a version of Maxwell, making sure to remind John of his chords. The waltz-time tang is remembered by George and Ringo, but Paul states flatly that he doesn't like it. Ringo jokingly says it's the only bit he remembered. Paul counts in another run-through, a little fast. Paul reacts to his voice coming over the, the PA.
1: All alone
0: Cuts, then the tape cuts. This is probably the same performance. Paul improvises a different tag this time. Third verse still isn't written.
1: Please don't add a boy.
2: So it'll be that roughly. This is A
1: camera roll fifty eight, slate hundred and twelve at the moment.
2: The first time.
0: Suggests John play guitar like a ukulele. He can hear someone clicking their tongue in time and ask who's doing that. The Get Back documentary indicates that this was George.
1: Okay, uh, one, two, three, four. John was quizzical, studied metaphysical science.
0: Another run through breaks down after the chorus as Paul forgets to play a tag. He this time improvises a descending line on the piano. Interestingly, he can hear the bass part and guitar part at the same time in his head.
1: Sort of a bit more sort of arasmatized the on the symbol say. George
0: thinks his part sounds wrong. Between him and Paul, they work out what will fit, though that bass is horribly out of tune. Uh. interesting to hear that george works out the part by naming the chords and thinking of a scale that will fit whereas paul just sings the part intuitively
1: Back in school again, maxwell plays the fool again.
0: another classic lennon guitar solo veering off course rapidly
1: he was solo maxwell <laughs>
0: over the tag you can just about hear john off mike inspired by the music to burst into a music hall comic routine of the i say i say i say variety it might have helped the song if he'd kept that in
1: like after that, that's uh, in between like the first, see it goes, John was critical, studied better physical science in the home, late nights all alone.
0: George wonders where the tag will go. Rather than explain, Paul plays through the whole first section of the song at double speed.
2: Sure the John
1: was dead. If you cut out the, sure the John was dead. Because didn't it used to go? Yeah, went got one. Keep it into the long one, Sure that John was dead. Sure that John was dead. Cha-tun. School again, Maxwell is a fool again, teacher, na 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 dan Same with the solo So he never gets to that bed. No the da, next after da, da, solo then oh, does get okay. done. Uh, whistling. Just so try bang, and do like bang. a real whistling solo because it is a bit much of it's those joke whistlings
0: John whistling which Paul thinks could work is it, the,
1: the, the, is it that the verse part the Oh no it's the uh... It's not the bang bang definitely
0: picked up the melody that Paul was singing quicker than George did this time To break for lunch, but George wants to carry on.
1: One, two, this is Slate, 114, roll, 59, A camera. A,
2: A camera. Yeah, that's right, there's, there's the other till ready bit then.
1: Like, now was oh God, John God, was dead. Bit, there's only just one at the first. Now nah, that John was dead. It's lovely,
0: fellas. Paul suggests whistling the bridge.
1: Again, play the again, teacher. Sorry,
0: that the solo. So- Johnny's going with the whistled solo idea.
1: You should have a hammer for that. Where it goes.
2: Chink, chink.
1: Chink, chink. Uh, Mal, on, on an anvil, like on steel, you know, on a piece of <coughs> so it sounds silver, steel.
0: Paul makes the suggestion to Mal that he get a hammer. Paul counts in another run-through but doesn't explain that he's going to start the song on the tag. One, two, three, four. Is that on the
2: intro?
1: Yeah, do the other intro intro as well. Yeah. Everywhere now, in fact, Um, I love (whistles) it. I if I just did that wrong
2: I think it
0: would be do that. George forgets what he'd worked out on bass for this part Paul is dictating how John should whistle a solo.
1: Yeah, that's the one we'll do it. And the whistling goes. Now listen. Goes. Goes. That's nice, fellas. That was good, that was Max
0: This little section appears in the Blessed It film. Uh okay. A fairly tuneless attempt at rule Britannia by John. Or perhaps, in a callback to their Morkman Wise appearance in 1963, jokes that they'll be wearing straw boaters and blazers for this one. John adds, and real boats. Paul does a strange mock laugh at this poor joke.
2: (laughs) Take this guitar I offer you all humility.
0: We can see John in the Get Back documentary holding his guitar above his head for George to take off him.
1: Thanks a lot, Jim. Oh, Jim Garadi! where is your mother these days?
0: Paul says, thanks, Jim, then improvises a tune about Jim Garadi. It's been assumed that this is one of the crew, but I suspect this is a reference to the Goon Show character Jim Spriggs, played by Spike Milligan.
1: Wait a minute. Who else is in your battle dress with you?
2: It's me, Jim. Me
1: <makes noise> Rattle me cruckle <makes noise> It's rifleman
2: springs let
0: go <makes noise> yes, sir Yes sir
2: two men sharing one uniform Sharing one uniform
1: Look <makes> here <noise> yeah, this merging of regiments is getting too far I guess. <makes noise>
0: See you up there, lads, says George. And with that, the Beatles break for lunch. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod that's w-o-d-p-o-d you can also interact with me on the socials facebook and instagram and twitter plus my gmail all titled winter of discontent pod please like and subscribe and leave a review it really helps other people find us thanks for listening and bye for now